Hello, welcome to another Book Shambles Author Extra. This week, Robin is talking to John Higgs, author who wrote uh, KLF, Chaos Magic and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds, Stranger Than We Can Imagine, and uh, they'll be talking about his new book, Watling Street. But just before we get started with that, uh, to let you know, if you've not seen, we're doing a, another live Book Shambles event on May 4th at King's Place in London, and that will be the London launch of Dr. Dean Burnett's new book, The Happy Brain. Uh, we've had Dean on Book Shambles before, uh, author of the, the hugely successful The Idiot Brain. His follow-up to that, The Happy Brain, is out on May 3rd. And on May 4th, we'll be having a live event with Dean uh, in conversation with Robin Ince about the new book. And you'll be able to get copies of the book there and Dean will be signing them, with book, uh, book Shambles uh, tote bags and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash event slash happy brain or just go to the king's place website and uh get your tickets there well, we can do a book shambles extra this is with uh john higgs whose most recent book we're going to go straight in with your most recent book john and then okay. we'll go back to your we might talk about your, your your book about klf we might talk about stranger than we can imagine as well um now one of the things that's very special about your book watling street which is your journey along Watling Street um, is you start off you you hook people in with a piece of information which every single time I tell anyone about this they go no (laughs) so you start the book by explaining that the design of Milton Keynes was heavily influenced by post well late 1960s thinking books like The View from Atlantis uh, and that behind what people see as almost a, 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 a heartless environment were in fact um, ideologies of, of ley lines and land energies and solstice. Milton Keynes was designed as a pagan sun temple, and it works, and it works exactly like Milton, uh, like uh, Stonehenge does. Uh, and people are quite surprised by this because it's seen as such a sort of rational, sort of modern place. You know, it's, it was the white heat of technology. It was the 1960s. It's all designed for the car, and, and that's how we sort of interpret it. But you. You can't really put rational things on this country, on these islands. They don't sort of work. It's, it reminds me a bit like trying to sort of ice a, ice a jelly, right? In theory, you should be able to do it, but it's never going to sort of sort of work out. Uh, and so with Milton Keynes, you know, there was, there was this huge population boom after the war. Uh, they thought, we'll build some new towns. Can you imagine them doing that now? Milton Keynes was going to be, for a quarter of a million people, largest of the new towns. It was the, the 1960s. And they gave the job to a guy called Derek Walker, who was very heavily into Pink Floyd. And uh, his obituary in one of the broadsheets after he died, it quotes him as describing those times as very kinky. It's not the sort of quote yeah. you get from, you know, <laughs> town planners. Um, and they were, they were massively into Jean-Michel's view of Atlantis. And they just, it just occurred to them that if maybe they moved the... Move the, the the sightings of, of this this grid system just a little bit. They'd be able to align Milton Keynes down this central road, which they called Midsummer Boulevard, with the rising sun on the summer solstice. So about fifty years ago, about four four thirty in the morning, they're out in the fields with like their sticks and their ropes, and they're waiting for the, uh, the the sun to rise on the on the longest day, just to align the entire um, uh, town to be to the, to this. To this alignment, and the idea was the sun would come up at the end, and it would shine all the way down uh, the Midsummer Boulevard and light up the uh, railway station at the end, which was all mirrored and, and connects to the rest of the world. and uh, And it works, and it's absolutely brilliant. Except they they built a shopping centre over the middle of it, which kind of ruins it slightly. 
And if you go now, if you, I've been twice, you get about 18 people, right? 18 people up early for the, 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 the summer uh, sunrise in, in Milton Keynes. Whereas in Stonehenge, you get about 18,000 people. But Milton Keynes is the one to go for. Because once you know that the city is designed to be like that, it just becomes much more, you know, special. It just becomes a, just a much more uh, extraordinary sort of place. It's, it's mocked a lot because it's a place in Britain that doesn't seem to have a past. You know, there are buildings, all, there's no buildings older than you, and that's weird for us growing up on this island. It feels like a bit like a Canadian airport, you know, mm. it's, not, it's not actually a real place. Once you know just how strange it is, and you start to see all these alignments and pyramids and all these weird things. Milton Keynes is, yeah, it's great. I like Milton Keynes. Now, it's an interesting time as well when you were writing this on the cover of the book is, 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 is a beautiful illustration which includes, uh, amongst other things, uh, such as uh, Puck, it includes an image of the TARDIS by the White Cliffs of Dover, mm. which has just had uh, Remain. Uh, it does. Um, uh, the, which I suppose refers to the Pertwee years uh, where he was based <laughs> on Earth. I don't know for sure. But, it's, uh, but this is... Um, you start your actual journey mm. in Dover, and you're starting it on the day of of the vote of whether we would leave Europe or remain in Europe. Yeah. And so this has, uh, I mean, how much was your this inspiration? This feels to me, in terms of your full length books, in terms of this, what it's exploring mm. is it is exploring what is what is the myth and the history that that creates, in particular, England. Mm. Um, England, what, Wales. It's I'm very much. Oh yeah, sorry. You do yeah. get as far as uh, yeah, uh, Hollyhead, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, warning to anyone who's getting the fast ferry, by the way, over from Dublin is uh, the first train that will take you out once you arrive. It can only take two bikes, uh, so uh, <laughs> that is. Uh, there was one person left having to wait four hours in Hollyhead, and Hollyhead really has one of the least number of things to do that I found out yeah. uh, of anywhere. But so you start off. Sorry about. Uh, uh, why? Why were you? Why did you decide this was the time you wanted to write this book? Um, yeah, well, I should explain what the book is. It's just it follow it follows Watling Street. Um, Watling Street is the old name for what essentially we now think of as the A2 and the A5. It's the road up from Dover to Canterbury to, to London and up through the Midlands, and then veers off towards North Wales and, and to uh, into Holyhead, as, as you say. Uh, and Watling Street is is a name. Well, it comes from the, the Dark Ages. Um, you know, you often hear Ro- uh, Roman sources referred to Watling Street. It wasn't called Watling Street then. It was just it was just a name that had a certain power that other names for the street sort of didn't have, and it sort of spread along it, and it spread as north as, as, as Shrewsbury and as far south as Canterbury, and sort of went back through time and became a Roman road. So I call the whole thing sort of sort of Watling Street. Uh, and it struck me that if I wanted to write about Britain, that if you tell the story of a road, right. Road is essentially as apolitical as you could possibly get. Right, the road doesn't care at all about what you use it for. It just sort of connects people and, and lets you sort of uh, uh, walk on. Because the the, the 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 versions of our story, the versions of our island story, and how we sort of tell each other, do tend to be, you know, like the winner's script or the Norman story, or the they, they, they're sort of automatically sort of politicised in some way. Uh, and at that time when there was this great sense of um, disunity and, uh, you, know, you know, families weren't speaking to each other over, over Brexit and teenagers were refusing to speak to their, their grandparents and, and, you know, the whole sense that it was just a miserable time for everyone else, this, this sense of, of who we were wasn't really working for anything else. I just thought, if I just 
I'll go look at this road, right? I'll tell the story of this road and see if I can't get a version of who we are out of that that works, that like works for me, that makes me feel sort of, you know, uh, not proud to be British, but sort of delighted to be to be British, to sort of to sort to be able to sort of relate to the island again. So that was the. Do you, do you feel there was a change in your in your view of, of what national character is? Because of course, in, in terms of some of the more uh, um, unpleasant. Um, you know, newspapers, it seems mm. so often that even though they trump on about British values, yeah. um, the main values that they actually kind of aspire to are, are vanity and spite. You see this all the time. It's a, a vanity, spite, envy, you know, all of... It's, it's, it's a yeah. horrible... Um, do you think that you... Has it changed what you believe it is to have been... So, you know, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, a lot of it came from, from when I did my previous book. Um, I got to do a bit of foreign travel. I got to go to Canada, I got to go to Spain, and you're, you're treated very well, and you're sort of taken around places, and everyone's going, oh, can we get you a drink, sir, and all this sort of stuff. And I'd say, uh, yes, that's very kind, can I have a cup of tea, right? And then people would just sort of laugh, right? they just laugh at me for asking for a cup of tea, because I was so stereotypically... British that it was it was funny to them and it, my head's just going no hang on no tea is rationally the best drink you know it's not it's, that's the reason why I'm asking for this but you have to uh, face facts that the reason you know you like the comedy that you like the, like the music that you like the, the drinks that you sort of like it's not all you part of it is this sort of this sort of bolt-on that comes from the island that we we sort of grew up with uh, and that sense of our identity that comes from the island I kind of felt was being sort of used against me um, by all political parties, really. The, on the left, identity is much more... Well, it used, to, it used to be class, but now it's much more, you know, identity politics and, uh, and gender and ethnicity and race and things like that, which is brilliant for sort of working out systematic, you know, biases and things like that. It's, it's fantastic on that front, but it's not me. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not... It's not the me that my family know. It's not. It's not the me that's sort of important. Whereas on the right, you know, they're all over identity. They're all over like you know, flags and anthems and patriotism and, and stuff like that. But I kind of feel they've sort of twisted it to claim all that's coming up to the political state. It ain't the political state at all. You know, it's the it's the towns you sort of grew up in. It's the mountains that you know and, and the rivers and, and the, the sitcoms you're watching and the friends that you have. This is where that identity sort of comes from. Um, and it was, it was, the book was an attempt to sort of, sort of reconnect with what that really is, as opposed to what politicians of various stripes were trying to tell me that it was. Well, there's an interesting way you, you talk about the idea of how language can actually change our perception. I don't mean the use mm. of the, the, the way that we can convey something, but actually the perception itself. You talk about, uh, it's not Japan, where is it, that we're, we're, in terms of the words for blue, means yeah. that it, so, so that way that... The, and, and there's some lovely words that you. There's a German word you include, it's which monument. is a national monument to shame. Yeah, yeah, a, mon, a monument to national shame, and it doesn't exist in the English language, an equivalent word for for, for this thing. Uh, and if you look at, you know, Australia, Canada, how people treat the, the Aboriginal sort of people, the, the British Empire and stuff like that, it seems apparent. Well, to me, I think if we had the equivalent of this German word. Which I'm going to pronounce as Marnwell, but I'm sure I've got that horribly sort of wrong. I believe... There was a Which is a very much a, a British character trait. Yeah. You say a word and immediately apologise afterwards yeah. for how much you may well or may not have mangled it. I think when President Trump was going, right, we're going to pull out of the Paris uh, 
climate agreement. Right. I think if there's a word for a monument to national shame in the English language, I don't think he'd have been able to do it. Right. I don't think so. I think because we don't have a word for that. Uh, it's much to our, our detriment. And I, and I talk about words like uh, cooch, which is everyone's favourite sort of Welsh word. It, mean, it means like a, a little cubby hole or a, a cupboard, but it also means a cuddle where you feel safe. It means your home, basically. You're sort of safe and home, and it's just, just a lovely, lovely thing. Um, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of interesting words that we don't have as English speakers, but what we do have is this really flexible sort of jack-of-all-trades language. It's a, it's a bit like a, uh, a Swiss army knife of languages. You can sort of do anything, right? You can write computer manuals in it, you can write sonnets, you can, you can rap, you know, you can, you can do pretty much anything you like. And it sort of emerged, you know, in, in, in Kent uh, and went on to be spoken on the moon. It's, it's like being, you know, one of the, the most marvellous things we have, I think, this language. There's some lovely... Uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to skip, because I, I won't just go chapter by chapter, because there's lots of just fascinating information, as well as the kind of the stories. In the, I, I like the fact, for instance, when you talk about language, you talk about uh, the wine dark sea, the, the use by oh, Homer, yes, that's Homer, right, yes. sea, yeah. which then much later in the book you talk about when Alan Moore won uh, an argument with Professor Brian Cox. I do. And uh, that involved the wine dark sea, uh, uh-huh. talking about that particular part of Homer. <laughs> um, but uh, I, one of the... You, you go to Canterbury, that's one, obviously one of the first places you go yes, to. Yes, with C.J. Stone, yes. And that is... Have you seen, by the way, have you seen Pasolini's Canterbury Tales? I don't think I've seen that one. Um, it's such a... Fa- you no, know, I with, haven't. Yeah. You, you think of Pasolini, obviously you, you think kind of... You think incredible kind of, you know, great filmmaker, artistic... You don't expect to see members of the cast of Are You Being Served? And, <laughs> and, and the um, glamorous wrestler Adrian Street in it. And it's a, fa- it's, it's a great film, but it's a fascinating thing where you go, yeah. for some reason, you don't think that some of the actors from Are You Being Served... Uh, I forget his name now. Yeah. It's the guy who uh, um, is kind of in charge of the department. Uh, not Frank Thornton, the, the bald one with the, the hair outside who... Uh... Yeah, that is the great thing about these films. I talk about the Pal Pressburger Canterbury mm. Tale. Uh, and the first person you see in that is... Uh, oh, God, who is he now? It's not Tommy Trinder, is it? It's not Tommy Trinder. It's, um, it's the guy from the Carry On Films... Charles Waltry? Charles Waltry, mm. I'm sure it is. Sure, That's a sure great book, by the way. The um, mm. uh, book about his life, um, which is, uh, I think, called What's, in the, What's the Name? Oh, yeah. Um, which is, because there was quite a... There was one by uh, Roger Lewis called, uh, Pro- I think I was Private Whittle or something, or, uh-huh. which is a very short... But, but the, the, the the big book that was done all about um, uh, Charles Hawtrey is, is, is fascinating in terms of his life. You haven't read um, All the Devils Are Here, which is one yeah, of the yeah. that Well, Miller we could have got on to Thanet as well, because yeah. we talk about you know, Thanet. It's interesting when one thinks of it as the... You know the cusp, I suppose, of of of, of UKIP. Yes, <laughs> and 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 yet it's actually the the base of one of our first, not an invasion, mm. an actual an invitation to a mercenary force that took a liking too much to. Yeah, uh, well, that's where Vortigan starts. Vortigan's one of those characters that uh, uh, starts that part of the book and then follows all the way through up until up until Snowdonia. Vortigan just gone. You just have that bit of lands, lads. That'll be that'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the Canterbury stuff is, and you, and you have C.J. Stone uh, as well, author of uh, Fierce Dancing, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the fine group of uh, Postman authors as well. Yeah, Dan he Dan Rhodes yeah. being another of them. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Shooter's Hill, because you go to Shooter's Hill, and there is the, there is some sadness over this story, because mm. the person who was going to uh, be your guide there, 
is uh, the writer Steve Moore. Yeah. Who he, he died. died not long, I suppose, before you started it was, writing this. It was the same week that um, he was going to give me a tour all the way all the way around. And he was... Um, Steve Moore, I got to know him via... He, well, I, the reason I got to know him was I, I wrote a book called The First Church on the Moon, which is a, sort of a Douglas Adamsy type sort of comedy. And just at, towards the end, I just thought... I'll change the name of the Moon Base, which had a sensible name, to the Steve Moore Moon Base, thinking that's an in joke that maybe like six people might might know. Because anyone who's who's read Alan Moore writing about Steve Moore, especially this this, this story on Earthing that mm. he did, uh, will know the relationship that Steve Moore had with the Moon Goddess. He was basically a man who was in love with the Moon, um, and I kind of figured that the idea of a man who was in love with the Moon is the sort of the, a, a simple idea that would pass down well through generations is the sort of thing that you, the, that, that you know playground rhymes would be about. It's like his friend Alan Moore is a much more sort of complicated sort of naughty figure. The university is studying Alan mm. Moore and all, but Steve Moore was just the man who was in love with the moon. Um, so yeah, so I, I just called it the Steve Moore moon base thing, and nobody would get the joke. And eventually, the book sort of got to him, and he was he was delighted, and he got in touch saying in. In my philosophy, to have a fictional moon base named after you is a greater honour than having a real moon base <laughs> named after you. Um, so we just started an email uh, relationship because um, he's, he's one of those people who, if you've got a question, you know, you, you'd ask Steve Moore and you get these huge lengthy things. And we had uh, a month and month of really lengthy, long um, emails back and forth. Uh, and we're getting close to the time I was going to go up and he was going to show me around. But there's more and more references to angina and, and his health problems. And it sort of goes towards the end. Uh, and then he died. And that, that sort of block of, of emails is essentially our relationship. You know, it's sort of unchanging in time. And it's entirely literary and it's entirely in the world. And it's, it's in many ways, it's, it's, it describes Steve perfectly. You know, he, he, was, very, he was very much a man who trod very lightly uh, on, on the world. His influence is everywhere. You know, if you know it and you look for it, you can you can see his influence everywhere. But he was he's a very sort of very Taoist sort of man. He he does his work and withdraws and, and things like that. And there was a sort of a, a sense of him being a man who's never never really there. He was just a bit more of a myth, you know, he's just mm-hmm. he's just a gentle sort of sort of soul. So yeah, I put a lot about Steve in there because I wanna keep him alive in words. And one of the things like. the modern fourteen, you know, there are so, the fourteen times. studies books that yeah. also came out uh, off the back of fourteen he, times. He, as well he was as... one of the people who set up the first comic fan um, convention in Britain and ushered in, you know, the the whole sort of you know cult uh, zeitgeist that we have now. You know, he he was really there making sort of things happen. But uh, he sometimes um, there was a big interview with him and it was entitled The Hermit of Shooter's Hill and he was seen by many as, as being a bit of a, a, a hermit and he wasn't really he was just a lovely charming man but he wasn't sort of going out of the way to sort of get his name about yeah he was a lovely fella there's some yeah fascinating uh, kind of rumours as well about Think sightings that of, of, of yes. him at times where he actually was probably dead in his office yes and, and it's very very weird because I went with Alistair Frewish and Alan Moore um, to go through the house a few days after he after he died, uh, and he had his computer there, and you could see, you know, which emails had been read and which, which hadn't. And he always meticulously did a a dream journal as well as a nor- as a normal journal, and he'd do those every every single day, every single day. So he had a fair 
a fair understanding of when these stopped, right? It, it, it would be very odd if you just sat there for like a couple of days, mm. not not doing not doing these things. And it seemed very very clear that he died on the Friday, I think it was. But he was spotted by neighbours on two occasions at the, at the weekend on to the Sunday, and Sunday was this big full moon, which which it's all which sort of was, it would be, you know, it is it is very it is very fitting that he would be sort of seen on on that sort of day. Yeah, I mean, I. I Absolutely believe he died on the on the, on the Friday, and the, pe- the people who saw him of I don't know what that is. But there's a lovely thing in his dream journal where I say a lovely thing. Um, a couple of days before he died, um, he has a dream where he's in the, the box room, which was his office at the front of the house, and someone was trying to get up there on a ladder and trying to get the window sort of opened, and uh, and that's where he died, and that's where the the police officer came. They sort of put a ladder up and they tried to get that window open to sort of get into the house. We sort of dreamt all. All that. There's a lot of uh, there's, a, there's a lot of strange coincidences around Steve. He's, he's he's a very interesting man in those regards. You like coincidence, don't you? Because I of do course, like you know the the, the, the uh, um, your second uh, non-fiction book. I think it is, isn't it? The first one is uh, America. We have you surrounded. Would it be Timothy? I have Leary? America surrounded. And 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 then um, uh, your book about the KLF burning uh, a million pounds is, yeah. is of course packed with you know. Is it coincidence? Is it synchronicity? Mm-hmm. Is, is it as as Jungian as Jung might hope? Oh, that book just generates some like it's great. I did the audio book, which is out in a few weeks, I think. Um, and you know, I, I, it was uh, somewhere. The studio was somewhere in sort of northwest London. I didn't really know where it was, so I got out the, the tube and I got on the map, the Google map, and it said uh, well, it's twenty-three uh, minute walk, which it would be twenty-three minute. Uh, 23 figures through that story and directly dissecting the walk was Watling Street it was directly through the middle I thought oh brilliant and I walked there and I walked in the studio and the first thing I saw was uh, Sophie Aldred who played Ace uh, mm. in, in Sylvester McCoy's Doctor Who which is mentioned in the book and it's quite so, sort of significant in the book I thought oh yeah it's still which links to Ken Campbell as being the, there's a whole yeah it's it's a it's a fantastic. Uh, have, you, have you seen this? The Liverpool Arts Lab did this 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 comic, no. the, the Renaissance of Matthew Street. In here, there's a fold out version of the um, the manhole cover in Matthew Street in Liverpool that figures heavily in Carl Jung and Peter O'Halligan and uh, where is it and uh, and Bill Drummond's mythology, especially Bill Drummond. Okay, there you go. If you want a fold out version of. There is a the, do, of a manhole cover. I'm I'm the man for you at this moment. Because yeah, twenty three for those listeners who don't know, it's it's, it's uh, frequently brought up by Robert Anton Wilson and, and the Discordian movement. Yeah. As, uh, uh, and it's it's a number that's never worked for me. It never happens. I You're don't get lucky. And it's, it's annoying as all hell after a while. Because your but this this is the great thing about the KL, as uh, I've, I've talked about this before. But basically, I, I got to know John because uh, he happened to notice a tweet I made about the fact that I couldn't find my copy of Robert Anton Wilson's Quantum Psychology, and he got in contact mm. with me and said, um, "You might like this book that uh, I've." I've I've written and uh, he sent me a copy I was away on tour and uh, and then the last day of the tour I popped into Northampton and I had uh, pizza with Alan Moore and we went to a, a church I looked around a church and in fact the church where he was was christened that the, oh, yeah. the and yeah. uh, um and then I get home and the book has arrived and I open the book just that way that you just open and, first, mm-hmm. and the first page was Alan Moore in Northampton. Yeah. And then a few days later I came down to Brighton not knowing John was uh, from Brighton and walked past Wax Factor Books and saw a book about uh, how UFOs are built uh, that came out in the uh, early 1950s and I bought that book and then tweeted a picture of it and then John went, oh, you must have just walked past Wax Factor. I was thinking about going back to get that book. <laughs> and then I went and did my gig that night and uh, Guy Pratt came up to me and said, uh, oh, I've got a friend of mine here. I bet she's the only 
scientist that used to be on top of the pops and uh, said, oh, why are we on top of the pops? She said, I used to be a backing singer for the KLF. And this was yeah. this great kind of... And yeah, so yeah. there's this wonderful thing that does happen with the, the KLF book, which is while you are reading it, you suddenly seem to go, oh, there's a lot of KLF around at the moment, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. then is a beautiful thing of going how much we miss all the time. And it, well, that, that's the whole point. I mean, Robert Anton Wilson did say it would have been better off teaching, you know, his readers to spot uh, quarters on the floor than spotting the number 23. You know, that would have been better off for everyone else. It's more, once you, once you start seeing these things and you start seeing them everywhere and it really confuses you and freaks you out, uh, it's only then you slowly think, well, what about number twenty-four? What about number twenty-five? All the, what, everything you're filtering out—it's—it's—it's it's, it's an exercise in understanding how much of your perception of the world is is narrowed down to to, to a very specific thing. Uh, I think it was Burroughs has this great um, uh, exercise where if there's an area like you like this, I live around here. If there's an area you walk around all the time, like to work or something like that, take the walk that you always do, but look out for a particular colour, like look out for orange right, or purple, right? And you'll go about the, the walk around, you know, the most mundane streets to you and they'll be completely different. Mm. And you'll see all these things you've just never, never seen. You've just never, never seen. Uh, it's it's the, 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 you know, the, the biases of our mind are a, a remarkable thing and uh, um, and having a better relationship with them is, is not to be sniffed at, I think. Yeah, it's a good idea, but never feel that you're going to be able to see everything. Because if you mm. at any point see everything, you will never move from that chair. <laughs> yeah. and that's the end of you. There's, I have to. We, we mentioned. I wanted to talk about Brian Hall, but that, that people should read oh, the book. Yeah, There's a yeah. lovely uh, where C.J. Stone talks about Brian Hall and and, and, the, and the nature of and, where, of, and, where, and whether uh, Tony Blair will ever humble himself at the the grave of Brian Hall mm. in, in the way that uh, Henry humbled himself at the grave of Beckett at, at Canterbury. There's some great. So I'd, I'd highly uh, read the book to find out. But I wanted there was a word again going back to Steve Moore, which I loved. Where you talked about self-willed therapeutic schizophrenia. Uh-huh. Now uh, you didn't know how to pronounce, pronounce that German name. This one, I don't even have the alibi of it being in a different language. Mm. Tulpamancy, Tulpamancy, Tulpamancy. Yes, I mean I get that's. I, I wrote about that again in a book called The Mysterium, which David Bramwell and Joe Keeling mm. did. If you, if you know that, and and I I, I, I was more accurate in, in that than I was in, in Watling Street because I was comparing. Um, Steve Moore's relationship to the moon goddess Selene with this uh, a, a thing that you can find on the internet if you go into, into all the right or the wrong sort of places, which is people having relationships with imaginary beings who start to become alive for them. And it generally goes under the name tulpomancy. A tulpa is like a, a, a thought form or, or something. It, it comes from um, uh, Buddhism originally, I, I think. Um, Mancy is just a cool sounding word that they've stuck at the end of it you know you know you would think tulpamancy means you telling the future by tulpas it means nothing like that at all it just sounded good to them so they they sort of went it went with it and um oddly it's all connected to the my little pony brony fan club which is adult male my little pony fans called bronies which is sounds very Suspicious to a lot, a lot of people, this this sort of subculture, but it's quite, uh, it's quite an accepted thing on 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 many levels, and they're all sort of having relationships with imaginary versions of My Little Pony sort of characters or or uh, manga characters or anything with sort of big eyes, and it's it's very very, um, uh, it's a very very strange subculture out there. Yeah, 
Oh, what was the question? Am I just? It was just Tulpamancer. Yeah, Tulpamancer. Never, it was the first time I'd heard that word for the, the benevolent form of uh, schizophrenia. It's annoying because I was uh, um, just writing about the importance of inner voices oh, uh, yeah. in a chapter where he's Nina Conti, of course, became oh, ventriloquist because of Ken Campbell, of course. who uh, oh. couldn't nearly mean Doctor but it was Sylvester McCoy. And you met Sophie yeah, Aldred yeah, on that yeah, day. Yeah. You went to number twenty-three. Yeah, yeah, because it's Tulpamancer is not viewed as a mental illness because it's not um, uh, upsetting to people. In fact. It seems to be a positive thing for many people. They they they, uh, they get a lot out of it, and um, and their, their mental health scores seem to seem to improve. So it's not viewed as a as a as a as a, as a issue like that. Hence the self-willed therapeutic schizophrenia sort of thing. It's it's yeah. It's it's a it's well, it's a big subject to go into here, but. It was interesting with with Nina when I was talking to her, and she's such a. I think she's you know really great ventriloquist. Yeah. And I I was interested to find out that uh, she's very much in control of Monkey, and if anything is an appendage, it's uh-huh. kind of her. But I said, <laughs> does, does anything ever happen where? Because I'd always imagine with ventriloquists. Um, certainly of that level, that sometimes you think, oh, I can't believe what the puppet just said. Yeah. Or they won't say the puppet because, of course, they become, you know, Monk becomes, so it's, it's such a character. Um, but she said, no, 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 she's, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. It can say all those things. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. it's not a shock or a surprise. It is, yep, this can come out now. And that's fine. Wow. Okay. We, last time I saw her, she did this thing where she just put herself entirely in a bag with Monkey sitting at the top. So she's gone. Yeah. She wasn't there. It was just the Monkey show. It was just Monkey sort of sitting there and um, asking questions to the audience. And one person in the audience was Kermit Leverage from Black Grape. And he asked a question. The monkey goes, who's that? And he says, well, it's Kermit. And the, the monkey started freaking out to, to discover that Kermit was in the Because, <laughs> of course, it can't see. It can't see. It's not actually a green frog. Um, that was an interesting thing where um, that Nina actually said that was the one time that she really felt uh, she was out in America, in New York, playing a much smaller gig. Obviously, she's not as, yeah. as well known over there. And she did that thing in the bag. Uh-huh. And someone asked a question, and it was someone who obviously had uh, some form of, of uh, physical disability or speech impediment. Okay. Um, and Monkey kind of made a bit of a joke about it. Okay. And afterwards, she went, That was, she thought, why? Now, that's, you know, again, about being uh, blind to the audience as mm-hmm. well, to not be able to. Uh, it was kind of intriguing. Um, there's so much more that we could talk about, but I want to briefly mention where you were born because about halfway, a little bit beyond halfway through, obviously mm. halfway through Brookhaven, Northampton. If you want to hear more about, uh, there's some wonderful stories, obviously from from Alan Moore and Alistair Fruish uh, there about Northampton. But then you get to rugby, where you were born. Yeah, and this I've, I've found particularly, in, you deal with two things here. One, which is the childhood memory and the fabrication of our memories. Yeah, 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 and and the extent to which our remembered past is is wrong. Um, there's this lovely phrase, the Ebbinghaus curve of forgetting, which is how they how they plot the uh, the how your memories decay and get more and more inaccurate as uh, uh, as time goes by. Um, and when I when I mentioned C.J. Stone, I, I have strong memories of reading that book, Fierce Dancing, when I lived in Liverpool, uh, and the book wasn't out at that point. And I, but I, I can picture it. I guess I had these red shelves, and they came from Argos, and they were dirt cheap, and I left them in Liverpool, and it had a blue spine, and it sat on these these things. And I remember reading it, but it didn't exist then so sometimes it fell back through a wormhole in time which being Chris I'm quite rule out or it's just entirely sort of fictitious memories 
And so I go back, I go back to sort of see the house I was born in. And of course, my memories are completely wrong about what that one is as well. Yeah, it's dangerous to do that, isn't it? I, I was talking the other day about I was in uh, near Newbury, where where my my gran had her house, and I happened to be playing near there, and I decided mm. to wander down the road that I thought it was at, and I went, and it yeah. all changed. And you kind of go, I'd always, pres- you know, each house and each memory yeah. exists as there are still the same ornaments on the mantle and you go oh no people have come and they've yeah. ruined it yeah. and they've made it the wrong colour and everything's got the wrong size because you know you no longer four foot tall anymore yeah the the, the, the sort of the, the boundary between true memories and false memories is very similar to the boundary between history and myth I think it's this sort of very strange sort of flexible um, thing that logically you think well they're two separate things they're, com- they're completely different logically that's true and that, that sort of isn't but practically um, it never kind of sort of works out like that. Things that are believed to be true one year may be disproved uh, future years, or things that were believed to be myths like Troy suddenly become real again when they sort of sort of pop over. And you know, historians are sort of uh, patrolling the boundary as best they can. You know, mm. but they wouldn't claim to be to you know hundred hundred percent. And so, the more I started doing this journey, the more the importance of our myths. Um, uh, came about because you can't just go. Well, they're just myths. We'll just just ignore them. The the the, the history of the kings of Britain um, was our myth. This was one of the first sort of uh, bestseller books after the Bible. Really, it's just the story where everyone in Europe got the stories of Arthur and, and uh, uh, Merlin and all all those people. It, it came from this this uh, this book. Um, was it the Venerable Bede? I'm getting confused there, aren't I? Um, but at some point in our history, we sort of went, oh, well, that's not actually true, right? Because although, you know, Vortigern was a real person, pretty sure all the stuff with the dragons didn't happen, mm. you know, and all the stuff. That, so we'll ignore all that. So instead we'll teach everyone the Bible, because those there, that's definitely true, mm. right? That's definitely true. And so a few hundred years ago, it's sort of like the myths of our country sort of got pushed aside so we could learn the myths of other country, countries inside and it's a real shame because there's some brilliant things in, in, the, in the history of the kings of England and uh, it does have dragons and it does have wizards and you know and all that sort of stuff and that does make <laughs> that does make for good stories and you can go to the places where these things happen you know Dimas Emerus in, in uh, Snowdonia is the one I, I talk about in the book and, and, and things like that you know, yeah the, the, the boundary between myth and, and history is um uh, it's 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 good to sort of accept its flexible nature. I think. It's, yeah, it's an interesting thing to realise that sometimes a bland, supposedly uh, historical fact yeah. is in fact as fictitious as a dragon. Yeah. So, so yeah, quite yeah, often yeah. when you go, here be dragons, you may well merely be reading a book by Neil Ferguson Definitely. and go, I think this chapter, here be dragons. Yeah. I don't know, by the way, I've never read Neil Ferguson, so it's not an attack on his, his uh, um, as a historian. It's, it's probably, if dragons were pro-empire, that would probably be his, yeah. his sort of t- his take on it. You can also do it with Christopher Hill books. There we go, there's balance. Okay. The Marxist <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, and um, that we could now go into World Turned Upside Down, which you quote, which of course one of his, yeah, most yeah, yeah, but we yeah. won't go there, okay. because I wanted to go back to another thing about rugby, which I found interesting, was you predominantly use that as an illustration of what the public school mentality does to ideas of uh, 
Britishness yeah. and indeed and it's interesting because I had a uh, I was uh, I was with a bishop the other day oh yes yes and he was he's, he's a bishop from a uh, uh, brought up working class background in in uh, Liverpool and he talked about when he went and worked in Cheltenham for a while and he met the uh, boys from Cheltenham College which yeah. is a public school which is also the location of Lindsay Anson's if who also went there oh, yes. and how he really suddenly thought wow mm. the difference in mentality and what was intriguing to me is that's actually the school I went to and Right. Okay. So we were on, in some ways, not necessarily different sides of the raw iron fence, but mm. in terms of one of us was inside and one of us, and both of us came to the same conclusion. Though. Yeah. But mine coming yeah. from a, the confusion of observing privilege with a, 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 a distance even as in there, and his from coming from something very different. So this is, you know, having rugby school, one of the most famous you know, Tom Brown school days, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, comes to this. Um, what do you? How much? But by going back there and observing that, and also thinking of it as the place that you came from, mm. um, what what do you feel has been? That what are the problems? Yeah, of, I mean, it, it, it came out in the before I got to rugby. I, I went to places like um, uh, oh, Bletchley Park, and, and we all know the story of uh, Alan Turing about Bletchley Park. But when you go there and look at it again, I became more fascinated by the story of Tommy Flowers. Uh, Tommy Flowers is the guy who basically invented and built the first working electrical programmable computer, who should be in all the history books. But he was just completely written out because he was working class. He was from the East End of London. He, he learned engineering at night school. And, and Bletchley Park was this, this, this totally, uh, especially at the start, it was this very, very upper class. And the advertisements for staff would be for a particular type of people and, and Turing almost never got in because um, they 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 were looking for professor types but they were looking for like linguists and classicists and things like that because mathematics was sort of viewed to be to do with trade mm. mathematics and engineering they were sort of looked down upon that's like the Manchester London kind of divide which um, mm, mm. Uh, Freeman Dyson talks about in I think infinite in all directions oh, he talks, yeah, you know yeah. London being the place of uh, art yeah, and um, Manchester being the rather grubby place of uh, yeah. <laughs> of, of, of industry, and, and how that changed their opinions in terms of art and science. Yeah, abso- absolutely, absolutely. It, it was a, it was a thing that kept coming up in the book. These sort of geniuses, is that Alan Moore being one of them, who's just who've just been sort of ignored um, because they're working class, and how much damage that has done our country when people like Tommy Flowers who after the war could have been such a major asset to it but it's really heartbreaking sort of what happened to him um and another example is this this notion um uh, of who wrote Shakespeare right that, mm. that you get and it's always oh it can't have been like Shakespeare because you know he he, he was a lad he's, his dad was a merchant right it must have been a lord or possibly like a team of six lords or, or something like that that the there's refusal to believe um, that uh, a working class person could do something of the brilliance of Tommy Flowers, of Shakespeare, of Alan Moore, um, because the, the, the heart of that particular school system is the belief that they're superior. And, and that's what everything sort of revolves around. And you're sort, of, you're sort of taught that because you go there, you are by definition superior, right? And... and you ain't. <laughs> You're really not. Once, you, once you've got that delusion, you sort of build everything else on on that delusion. Um, it's it doesn't it doesn't work out well at all. And, and you know we had uh, we had a government where uh, of, of Eton 
types who when they were trying to sort of you know unite the Conservative Party and and sort out the deficit, right? And they were just so incompetent, you know. They, they just thought, well, I know we'll have austerity and we'll have a referendum on EU and that'll sort out the problems of the deficit and also, you know, it's just how how um, how wrong were they for for uh, the position to power they sort of found themselves in? But because they, they just believed that they were, they just believed that they the right people to sort of lead and, and, and all that sort of stuff. You and definitely I, I, get that sensation when you watch a lot of them at the moment. Yeah. The, the, the Johnsons. And, the, and it's, yeah. it's difficult. I try, I try not to... I try not to... I'm, I'm well aware that we're, we're very good at spotting, um, you know, the, uh, the problems of privilege above us or the uh, prejudices above us, right? And we're very bad at looking at the prejudices below us and things like that. So... Now I'm in, you know, I'm getting to write all these books. I'm in a, a lovely position. I'm really sort of, you know, happy with how my life sort of, sort of turning out. I, I, I can feel there's a sense of me going, no, no, I'm still, I'm still, you know, I'm still, you know, working. Well, I'm, I'm from, the comp- I was a free school meal kid in uh, Comprehensive with North Wales, right? So that was that was the sort of background I'm from, and I see it far more uh, of in, in in the industries around me, people who have very sort of different sort of backgrounds. And I'm, I'm conscious that I, I could feel myself going, oh no, I'm still, I'm still, you know, separate. And uh, I, I, it's, it's very easy to sort of want to be part of the, the, the them and, and have, have privileged people to sort of rail against. I'm trying to avoid it. I'm really trying to avoid it as much as possible. But it's very hard when you start talking about the British school system because this belief in superiority that's drilled into people is the root of such ludicrous you know problems that we have on many levels well that's always what that that was the moment that i became skeptical i only enjoyed school when i was at a normal school and then right. i went into that and but um, on the first day we were given this uh you gotta remember you're the top five percent of the country and, <laughs> and that for some reason i don't know why i was skeptical as a 13 year old but that was the bit that made me go uh, but it's yeah it's an old i mean that, I, i'm in a far more fortunate position than, than, than you because i can just go uh no, I've just checked my privilege and I'm bloody bubbling with it and there's no way round. I, I, I can't, um, you know, the, the mere act of having Elvis Costello glasses when I was eight years old and being a little bit of a freak and a weirdo, that's not enough doesn't, doesn't go to that far enough everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what book out of the, uh, of, of the non-fiction books that you, you've uh, written, hmm. which one do you think, I mean, I, as you know, I, I, I like all of them, but Stranger Than We Can Imagine has is... I mean, it's the whole of the 20th century. You try and cover that yeah. in a book. And you have a, a description, for instance, of uh, wave-particle duality, which Jim Al-Khalili absolutely loved. And every physicist uh-huh. I know uh-huh. I've told them, which is wave-particle duality, the fact that something is both a, a wave and a particle is like saying something is both a brick and a song, which yes. I love. Uh-huh. Um, but which of, of the books that you've worked on, which do you feel has perhaps changed you the most? Which has, has meant that when you look at the world, you go, right, this is this is not how it was before I started. Ooh, I mean, the the book I'm writing at the moment is having having that effect on me, but it would sort of would be because it's it's um, I'm currently well, I'm in the third trimester of this this particular uh, pregnancy, and at that stage, you, you sort of when you have the whole book in your head, you're not really fit for much. You're sort of sort of staggering around, and you're sort of bloated and and. Uh, uh, and you can barely hold a normal conversation with with, with folk, um, and it's it's a book about 
the future. I mean, strange we can imagine is about um, you know the time that sort of made us. Watling Street is about the place that made us, and and this next book is 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 about where we're we're sort of going, uh, and it's made me far more um, excited and optimistic about the future. Uh, it's still, you know, it's it's not it's not. I mean, we're talking about Stephen Pinker really. It's not like hey, everything's just going to be great. It's all fine. Don't worry about it. Everything is going to be free. But it's more the, the the changes in the in the post millennial generation, um, and how they get how they sort of interact with things like you know the acceptance of AI and our, our um, and the, the, the problems of climate change and all all those sort of things. That's such an extraordinarily empathetic generation they they um they they don't say things like my friends they like we would i'd say there's my friends there's me and those are my friends and that's the relationship they'd say my friendship group and they'd sort of they'd sort of understand the, the links between everyone and, and had the dynamic shift but sort of sort of between between everyone because they've sort of grown up in this networked uh environment and i love I'm, I'm, if you watch something like the breakfast club with them right it doesn't work for them. They just don't understand it in, in the slightest. I hate the breakfast club. Oh, do you? Because it has a message at the end of it, which is, yeah. if you are a goth girl, yeah. why not comb your hair and put on a nice white dress? And I feel that is a very negative... Uh, yeah, that... that anyone who's a goth has only chosen that position due to a deep unhappiness. Whereas goths are some of the happiest people I know. That is, that was, that's always been an obvious flaw of, of the film. But for, for like Generation X... You know, we had, we were uh, the um, what's his name, Jude uh, Nelson, is it? Uh, the, yeah. the Bender character. Um, he was the hero, right? Because he would take he took no shit. He just did what he liked. You know, he he was he was his own man. He, he made his own rules, uh, and he was the hero. And the uh, principal was the villain, right? That's how we we understood it. Um, and the kids now they watch it, and first of all, the principal's not the villain. He's just doing his job, right? He's a bit of light relief if anything else uh the, the 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 bender character is a horrible person he's deliberately cruel to people he makes people miserable on purpose and you know he's got a sort a sad backstory but that's not enough to disguise the fact that he's just a total arsehole and they're right he is a total arsehole whereas the nerd character brian right at some point he confesses that he had attempted suicide in the, in the week before right and he, you know, the, the school put him in uh, detention, and his mum's disappointed with him, and it sort of played for laughs because he used a flare gun and, and things like that. So when the, the post-millennial generation watch that film, they don't get that Bender's the hero. They don't understand why the fact that Brian, who is the one who needs help, you know, who is 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 what they think he must be, what the film's all about. The, the change in them is really remarkable, and it's just come at just the right time you know it's, it's we so need their way of looking at things at the moment um so yeah that's what I'm, uh, I'm 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 spending a lot of time thinking about at the moment that's i think that's changing me i'm feeling much more um positive uh, about where we're going uh, because and and they get they get mocked so much by the baby boomer professors for for safe spaces and um you know all, all that all that all the all that they're seen they're seen as um oversensitive right and they are they, they, they totally are oversensitive but it's it's not just that it's much more it's, oh, it's they much just part of a bigger no, i think everyone when that that's the thing because i saw someone put up a joke yesterday that was a, a take on millennials being you know having a go at the why the chicken cross the road joke or something. Yeah, yeah and i thought this person who's put it up who's in their 50s 
is one of the most touchy people I know <laughs> about anything which is about what you would consider to be, hit, you know, him. Not be, and now he's, oh, those millennials. And I think, mm. oh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a little... It's, the New Scientist had a good article last week which was talking mm. about, you know, people keep banging on about, you know, oh, the campuses and universities have been shut down and no one can say anything anymore. Um, the evidence is not... It doesn't mean you can't find the anecdote required. Yeah. But actually, on, on a broad... Uh, as far as certainly what I've seen so far does not suggest that, you know, I remember when I was a student, um, you know, quite often we'd end up going on a march or holding some placards mm. outside an event which we hadn't fully read about. And you know what? People <laughs> still do that now, not just the placard, you know. Oh, and, I tell you, yeah, I'm in full agreement with you. There. What's, what's, what's interesting is the, the shift from childhood when you play to adulthood when you're responsible, right? Uh, and it, most of our history it was... You hit a, a particular point, you have a bar mitzvah or something like that, you're an adult and you're responsible, stuff like that. Uh, the, the baby boomers, uh, they sort of invented this teenage thing in, in between where, um, you know, they, they, were, they, were, they liked adult things like sex and drugs and rock and rolls and cars and things like that, but they didn't want the responsibility, so they opened up this sort of teenage era. And then Generation X, my lot, sort of came along and we went, yeah, that's, we, we could keep extending that indefinitely because it's great, we don't want that, we'll, we'll extend that as much as possible. And the millennials then sort of went, yeah, that's the, that strange area between childhood and adulthood. Maybe we could actually make it more like childhood. And it, be, it, became, it became much more um, uh, childish. Uh, what the post-millennials seem to be doing is they're sort of putting on all this responsibility and keeping the play. So childhood has become this really sort of long, strange, lengthy thing. But you get things like the, the, the Florida students uh, advocate for good gun, gun control. You know, it's amazing what these, these sort of kids are sort of coming out with. This particular generation, I'm, I'm very taken by them. The um, John Higgs, so if, if people want to read uh, John Higgs's best book, it's not available yet because he didn't finish writing it. Yeah. That's what we've discovered. But um, <laughs> Watling Street is out now, and uh, it's in. Is it in uh, smaller paperback now? It was in no, paperback. it's it's uh, July. I think it's out in paperback. Okay, um, but it'll be ebook as well. Uh, not, yeah. not uh, audio book. Well, but it's, 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 it's out, out on it anyway. It's uh, it's out on normal. So thanks very much, John. Thank you very much for listening. And remember, if you like the show, do jump onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review there. That really helps us out. Or you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge your support there in a financial capacity. And you'll get lots of rewards for that as well. Extended episodes, bonus episodes. Our first uh, book club is going live uh, towards the end of the month uh, with Robin and Josie and probably myself as well. We're doing Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. So make sure you get reading that. We'll post the details very soon about the date for that and we'll be back on thursday with a new episode with robin and josie in the studio chatting to richard holloway this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robin's book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions (laughs) 